0: And this morning, I want to share, as I, as we move from that into Scripture, I want to share on the subject of faith that overcomes. And if, it, if, if I'm anything like you, I've read books about faith, I've listened to sermons about faith over the years, and I find that it can be a very confusing term, terminology, and it, it sometimes, well, how do we get more of this faith? Is it something that I can somehow conjure up on my own? And, you know, as I th- think about a parallel in Scripture, it's so important for us that we understand this term faith, and how it applies to our Christian lives. Because Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Think about that for a second. Hebrews 11.1, 1, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because he, he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that re- he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Or another passage that says, um, just trying to think of the passage here, um, from, uh, where is it? John 1, 1 John five four for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So if it's true that without faith is impossible to please God, and that this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, then it's imperative that you and I understand this faith journey. And like I said, sometimes it can seem very confusing when we look at ourselves and realize how much lack of faith there is and how do we get more of this faith thing. There's an interesting parallel of the Christian journey um, of the Israelite nation as they're journeying towards the promised land. You all know that story. You know, it's, it's amazing how the journey of the nations towards the promised land, all that God had for them, parallels our own Christian lives. They were freed miraculously from Pharaoh's grip, similar to satan's power rescued from slavery to egypt just like god has saved us from slavery to darkness and to like i said to sin and to satan miraculously led from egypt across the desert a wasteland 40 years of testing that's the number of testing in the in the bible 40 and so just like we are so often t- testing our lives, the nation of Israel was being matured by God as they were being led through the wilderness. But God provided for every one of their needs. The manna came down from heaven. Their shoes didn't wear out. You remember the story where Moses struck the water, the rock and water poured out a symbol of how Jesus is our living water. He is our bread of life. He is our manna from heaven. All these things were parallels to our Christian lives. And then as they move into, towards the promised land, you can imagine their excitement. For 40 years, they've been heading towards the promised land, and now it's right on the doorstep. All that, all the promises that God had for them, just like they are for us. They're the yes and an amen in Christ Jesus. And so they're excited. And I mean, they sent spies in and they brought back clusters of grapes that took two men to carry just one big cluster of grapes. This is awesome. A land flowing of milk and honey. God is so good. He's led us through the wilderness. He's led us from, the, from, from sin and from Satan, from slavery, like with Pharaoh. Promised land's all ours for the taking. But as they send the spies in, the spies come back with an evil report. There's giants in the land. In fact, they said we're like grasshoppers. They're going to swallow us whole. Only two men believed God, Joshua and Caleb. The rest of the ten spies turned the nation's heart against God, and they said, God, why would you lead us all this way only to consume us? And Hebrews says, do not be like them because of their lack of faith, because they missed out because of their unbelief, and they turned back into the wilderness. For another 40 years they wandered until that whole generation died out. How sad it is. How many Christians miss out on the promises of God because of lack of faith? Because we listen to the lies of the enemy. And so, 40 years, a whole generation dies out. Only two men are left from that generation, Joshua and Caleb. And once again they come to the edge of the promised land. There's a beautiful symbol of our in unity with Christ and being baptized with him in death because as they come again to the promised land and Joshua is leading them, as the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God, as it touches the water, the waters open up, a symbol of our baptism and union with Christ, and they enter into the promised land. And God says to Joshua, wherever your foot treads will be yours. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. God desires absolute victory for us. Wherever your foot treads, Joshua, that's yours. That's yours. That's yours. All these promises that I promised 40 years ago, they missed out. They're all yours. Don't miss out. And in Joshua, it's an interesting passage in Joshua 23. You don't have to turn there because I'm not going to take a whole lot of time on it. But in Joshua 23, listen to what Joshua says. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. What a beautiful picture. It's God who fights for us. And the Lord your God will expel them, all the enemies from before you. He will drive them out from your sight. You will possess the land as the Lord your God has promised you. Verse 9 of 23, For the Lord has driven out from before you great and strong nations, but as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised you. Verse 11, Therefore take careful heed to yourselves that ye love your God. But now listen to this. Now a warning. Now if any of you indeed go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, These that remain among you, and you make marriages with them, and you go into them, and they to you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations. They shall become snares and traps to you. Listen to that, because it's going to come up again. They shall become snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold this day, Joshua says, I am going the way of all the earth. He was about to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass, for not one of them has failed. They had received the promised land. They had seen God fight for them. So what happens? You turn the page to judges, and all of a sudden, what takes place? Because what seems to be incredible victory now turns to incredible defeat. You only have to turn two chapters, and you come to the book of Judges, and God had promised to drive out all the enemies. Every place your foot will go, I'll fight for you. And then in the book of Judges you read, Verse nineteen, chapter one, they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowlands because they had because they had chariots of iron. Verse twenty seven. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shaman. Verse twenty eight. They put the Canaanites under tribute, but they could not completely drive them out. Listen to this. Here's a whole list. Nor did Ephraim drive them out. Nor did Zebulun drive them out. Nor did Asher drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of the land. The Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains. And you read in verse 28 of chapter 2, Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has tr- transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that they may know that I, I am testing them, where they will keep the ways of the Lord. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out, and he did not deliver them. What happened, brothers and sisters? The promises of God were all theirs. And yet you go into Judges, judges, and they could not drive them out, and they could not drive them out. They began to settle with the very people that God had told them to destroy. That is no different than you and I in our Christian lives. We become content with our own defeat when God promises absolute victory for us to drive out sin, to drive out those things that enslave us, he promises absolute victory, but we settle for defeat. Just as they began to intermarry with the people of the land, so we settle for the sins in our lives, and we're not experiencing that victorious Christian life. The key to failure in our Christian lives is so often incomplete obedience because we truly do not believe that God's promise is for us. And so as I think of verses like 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Or Hebrews 11, that says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why do you think that is? Why does it say that it's impossible for us to please God without faith? The fact is, there's nothing that pleases God more than when we trust him. I was reading a parable recently, it's a newer book, it's called The Cure. It's a parable of a man journeying along the road, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. As he comes across this fork in the road, he sees a, a sign that says pleasing God. And he sees another sign that says trusting him. Pleasing God or trusting God, which way should I go? And so in his heart, he thought, well, I want to please God. And so he ventures down the path of pleasing God, and he begins to, begins to find other people who are also struggling, trying to please God. He begins to discover more and more of them have to have mass on because they're trying to hide their own defeat as they try in their own strength to please God. He becomes weary of this and fi- he finds himself back at this fork in the road. And he decides to go along the path called trusting God. And as he begins to ver- venture down that path of trusting God, he learns a powerful lesson that when we trust God, we please him. Isn't that awesome? So often if our focus is trying to please God, we end up in our own efforts and we, we end up finding ourselves defeated more often than not. But when we come to realize that God is, loves those who will simply trust him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And as our focus is trusting God, we find out that that is what pleases him the most. Isn't that awesome? And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to a number of passages this morning that highlight this reality of faith and how it is we come by it. And I believe there's an interesting connection in this first passage of Matthew 8, 5 to 13. If you have your Bibles, turn there. Matthew 8, 5 to 13. It's a beautiful passage that the Lord really revealed to me some years ago of this principle of faith and how we get more of it. And it's actually quite simple. Matthew 5, chapter 8. Sorry, Matthew 8, chapter, verse 5. We know the story very well about a centurion who Jesus says is a man of such great faith, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. That alone should make us want to read this story. That of all people, of all time, in all places, in all of scripture, there's one man, he's a Roman centurion, that, got, that Jesus says himself, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. Well, that's amazing. What was it about this man that had such great faith that 2,000 years later, you and I are about to read about him? What was about him that caused this man who was a Roman, not a Christian, not a Jew, but a Roman centurion, to have such great faith that even Jesus marveled at his faith? Let's take a look. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented, and Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. Now to give you a little bit of background here, try. Some, sometimes we just we gloss over these verses because we've read them so many times, but think about it for a second. Here's jesus who um is a jewish man and many of his own people don't even believe him but you have a roman centurion who's responsible for a hundred soldiers he's a man who has great authority under rome the jewish nation is under oppression by the romans so it took incredible humility and desperation for a roman centurion to come to a jewish man to ask for help that alone is amazing And there's a principle of desperation there that you and I can learn from. That's when you and I are desperate that we're willing to find the answers for our need. So often we're not desperate enough. Or we're not humble enough like this man to come to Jesus. So You see his humility when he says, I'm not even worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Now listen to this. The centurion says... For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in all of Israel. There's a hidden principle right here in the scripture that to me has transformed my world when it comes to faith. Because what was it that caused the centurion to have such great faith? It was his understanding of authority. You see, he says to Jesus, I know how this works. It's why I've come to you. I'm a man who's under authority. I say to a soldier, Go, and he goes. I, I say to a soldier, Come, he comes. Because I have the authority. And what he essentially was saying, I recognize you in you, Jesus, that you have all authority. All you do is have to speak the word, and my servant will be healed. What gave the centurion such great faith was his understanding of authority. And so, brothers and sisters, when you and I recognize the authority that we have, that God reigns supreme over and orchestrates over every single situation of our lives, and you and I can rest in that authority, that is what will give us greater faith. So often we focus on faith and we realize our own lack, but we need to turn our focus off of our lack to the faithfulness of God. You see, Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, discovered that. He went through a really dark journey of feeling his incredible lack of faith, and he was discouraged and despondent. How do I get more of this faith thing? And the Lord began to reveal to him as he got his eyes off of his own faith or his lack of it and turned his eyes to the faithfulness of God. Guess what happened? His faith began to grow. Well, why was that? Because it, his focus was no longer his own lack. His focus was on the, God's infinite supply. It's like turning the telescope around. Have you ever done that? You look through the wrong end of the telescope. You know, it's meant to make things bigger like the moon, but you turn it around and now it looks like so far away. And many times we're looking from the wrong end. And our circumstance where the giants in the land are so large, and so we live defeated, or even the giants in our lives. I like, I can never get victory over my lack of faith. I can never get victory over this sin. I was challenging a friend of mine in our cell group recently. He's a newer believer, comes from a Catholic background, and he was sharing how he's struggling with one area of sin in his life. And he says, I'm 50 years old now. I'll never find victory over this. And I said to him, God gave me incredible boldness. I said, that is a lie. That is a complete lie from the devil. And he wants you to believe it. Yes, you cannot find victory in yourself. But in him, we are more than conquerors. Satan does not want you to find victory, but through the Lord you can. Don't believe that lie. And so the amazing thing in this passage to me is that what can truly grow our faith, like Hudson Taylor, is when we recognize the authority of the one who is faithful. When our eyes come off of ourselves and our circumstances and our own lack, we're looking from the wrong end of the telescope. As we begin to focus on his faithfulness, voila, our faith begins to grow because we're not the object anymore. He is. Let me share another passage with you, a similar example of how authority and faith go hand in hand, and I think it's beautiful. Turn to John 19:1 to11. Here we're going to see an example of Jesus in John uh, chapter 19 uh, verses 1 through 11. Again, you know the story, but you're going to see this authority, faith connection, how it's our understanding of authority that causes our faith to be sure. John 19, verse 1 to 11. Here Jesus is standing before Pilate in the courtroom. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, Wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die, because he made himself the son of God. Verse six. Now listen. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Again, put yourself in a situation. There's a head-to-head, so to speak, between the greatest authority of Rome that Pilate represents and Jesus the man who is God in human flesh. One represents the greatest of human authority. The other represents divine authority. And there's this face-to-face, this battle of the ages, so to speak, right there taking place. And Pilate is enraged and he says, do you not know who you're speaking to you? Don't you know that I have the power of life and death over you? Listen to Christ's response, verse 11. Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Isn't that awesome? What gave him such peace? Yes, he was the Son of God, yet fully man, but what gave him such peace, such composure in the face of the greatest human authority of that time, about to condemn him to death? You can see Pilate's. Like I said, you can see him raising his voice. Are you not speaking to me? Don't you realize who you're standing before? I think if Jesus said all that he could have, he could have turned that with a smile on his face. He says, don't you realize who's standing in front of you? The king of all the universe, slain from the foundations of the world? You don't recognize me now, but one day you are going to stand before me, and I'm going to judge the nations. With such humility, Jesus says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from from above. Therefore, the one who delivered to me to you has the greater sin. Brothers and sisters, when you and I understand the authority of God, the one who is our savior and our friend, the one who walks with us, the one who empowers us by the Holy Spirit, when our focus is on the authority of God, our faith will grow. It's when our faith is on our, our sin or ourselves or our own lack of it that we become defeated, but we focus on him without even realizing it. Just as a, a branch of in the tree, right? If you abide in me, you'll bear forth fruit. You just abide in me, walk with me, focus on me, and he produces that fruit of faith in our lives. Let me give you another story. I want you to really get this today. We're going to turn to Second Kings you might have not have even heard this story for some time a little sto- hidden story in the old testament second kings chapter 6 turn in your bibles there we're going to read this story of elisha and his servant gehazi one of my favorite passages in the old testament and again it really nails this faith authority connection that our faith grows when we understand the authority of the one that we have faith in second kings chapter 6 verse 11 to 18 Now to give you a bit of context first, this um, king of Aram, Aram, his name was king of of Aram, was um, the enemy of um, the the king of Israel. And every time the king of Aram began to plot against the king of Israel, he he was like so discouraged because he's like, how does the king of Israel know all my secrets? He seems to know all of my battle plans before they even come about. He began to wonder if he had a spy or a traitor in his midst. And so sec, Second Kings, chapter six, verse eleven, therefore, the heart of the king of Syria, um, king, uh, king Aram, was greatly troubled by this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, "Will you not show me which of us is for the King of Israel? In other words, he calls all of his counselors together he's asking, "Who of you is a traitor, who of you is speaking for the King of Israel?" Verse twelve, and one of his servants said. None of us, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you, sp- that you speak even in your bedroom. Like, sorry, King Aram, like, it's none of us, but this Elisha prophet guy, like, we can't keep up with him. As soon as we come up with a plan, Elisha, the prophet, tells the king of Israel exactly what we're thinking. He even knows the words you're speaking in your bedroom. It's pretty scary stuff. So the king of Aram, of course, is pretty ticked off. Verse 13, so he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, that he's in Dothan. So therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night, and they surround the city. Okay, so King Aram's ticked off. He's after the king of Israel, but every plan seems to be thwarted because Elisha is telling king, the king of Israel all the secrets, as if he heard the words right from the bedroom. All of his scheming, nothing is taken by surprise. King Aram is ticked off, and so he sends a whole army around the city of Dothan to where Elijah and his servant Elisha and his servant Gehazi are. Now, imagine if you're the servant Gehazi, Elisha's servant, and you wake up in the morning, you decide to go for a stroll on the rooftop of the castle, whatever it is, and as you're walking across the walls with your coffee or what they drank in those days he looks out and yawns and stretches like oh my goodness suddenly he sees this huge army that is there for them well i'd be freaking out too he probably threw down his coffee ran and got elisha and he says let's see where we are here verse 15 and when the servant of the man of god arose early and went out There was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots and his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He's freaking out. Like, what are we going to do? There's a whole army here after us. And again, I love the authority of Elisha's words, his composure. So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. What a prayer. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, I I can just imagine, if you're the Gehazi, and he's freaking out, he's thinking they're about to die. And Elisha simply prays, Lord, let him see. And what a powerful prayer for you and I to pray, Lord, open our eyes that we might see. And suddenly it's revealed to Gehazi the host of the armies of heaven, and this man who was quaking in his boots, all of a sudden he, I, I can just see him. He's like, "Wow, that's well, then bring it on, because greater is us who, those who's with us than those. Sorry, greater is he who's with us than he is with them." This host of the armies of heaven, this man who was quaking in his boots, suddenly changes, and now he's probably the boldest man. He said, come on, Elisha, we can do this. It's us and God. And then it says here, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he might see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man he saw, and behold the mount was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed the Lord and said, Strike this people I pray with blindness, and he struck them with blindness according to the word of the Lord. And you go on to see how the Lord dealt with them, and you can read that later. So what I want to get at this here, brothers and sisters, is that it's not so important what's coming against us. What's important is what we see when we look. If you could sum up the Christian life, I, I believe in some ways it could be some, with the word focus. And so often our focus is on the wrong thing. And just as Gehazi saw all the armies, just the spies saw the giants in the land of Israel and turned in defeat. It could have been a different story, but Elisha knew the authority that he stood, that stood with him. And he said, open his eyes that he might see. And that should be our prayer. Lord, open our eyes that we might see. Because when we see the authority that stands with us, there's nothing that is outside of his control. That's going to cause us to have great faith like Gehazi. It's not so important what's coming against us. And so often we can't even change that. But what's important is what we see when we look. I want to give one last passage here, and then we'll close. And you know the story very well. Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14. The story of Peter walking on the water. And again, to me, there's a very hidden jewel in this passage. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. We know the story very well, and we often give Peter a hard time. You know, here's this guy who's always sticking his foot in his mouth, saying stupid things. You know, we often think of him as being a man who didn't have faith, but you'll see in the story that actually Peter had incredible faith. Even in the midst of very fearful circumstances, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. So again, here you see disciples out on the boat. They have no idea where Jesus is. The storm is raging. They're about to die. In fact, the storm was well known to happen there on that sea. In fact, it was a common thing within that culture. When the storms came, they thought there was a spiritual battle taking place. It's no wonder they they thought they saw a ghost. They weren't expecting Jesus. It's the last thing on their mind, especially to see a man walking on water. And so in the fourth watch the night, verse 25, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walk in the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now listen to this. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. What a powerful verse. Lord, he said, essentially, he was saying, Lord, I've seen your authority. I've seen you, how you command the dead to raise to life, how you feed the 5,000, how you can calm the seas. I've seen your authority. We're thinking it might be a ghost here, but Lord, if it is you, I know what your authority looks like. If it's truly you, command me to walk to you on the water, and I know that in your command will be the power to fulfill it. Isn't that awesome? What a prayer of faith. Lord, if it is you, command me to walk to you on the water, because I know in your command is the power for it to be fulfilled. And Peter, the only human being other than Jesus, that ever was to walk on the water, he steps out in the boat, and he begins to walk towards Jesus. And yes, we know the second part where he began to sink because he took his eyes off the Lord. But the reality is, out of all the disciples, who was the one who got to walk on the water that day? Who was the one that had faith? It was Peter. Why? Because of this authority-faith connection, he knew how authority worked. Just like the centurion, the centurion knew how authority worked. Jesus, say the command, I know how authority works. When you say the command, my servant will be healed. That's why he had such great faith. Gehazi, Elisha, why, why was Elisha not afraid? Because he knew how authority worked. And he knew that the host of heaven had his back. And Gehazi got to see it. And now in this passage we see, why did Peter have such great faith that would enable him in the midst of a storm to actually walk on top of water? It was because he knew how authority worked. That's what great, gave him great faith. Command me to watch you on the water, and in your command will be the power to fulfill it. Brothers and sisters, when you and I truly have faith in the authority of God, our faith will grow because it's not based on the object of ourselves or our lack, it's based on his infinite supply. And like Hudson Taylor, as we get our eyes of ourselves and our lack or our sin, you know what? You and I will never find victory over sin by focusing on our sin. Try it any day. We become discouraged, we become defeated. Our sin gets larger in our eyes. This is impossible. But when we begin to focus on our Savior, the faithful one, he becomes the object of our faith and our desire. And as we focus on our sin, sin gets less in our lives. We desire him more than our sin. And that's what Roman teaches us. We don't find victory over sin by focusing on sin. We find victory over sin by focusing on Christ. And if you're struggling in faith in your life, and how do I get more of this faith? Begin to focus on the authority of God. As we focus on his authority, our faith will grow. I've given you four different examples of that here in Scripture. And so I want to challenge you here in closing. I don't know what that water may be in your life, what that sea of doubt or confusion or despair, the storms may be seeking to envelop you. I don't know what that storm may be in your life. It might be a family member who's in crisis. It might be your own lack of a job. It might be restoration with a family member. It could be some health crisis or, as you were studying, I saw on your website recently, to do with mental illness. I don't know what that water is, but I challenge you to say to Jesus in that storm of life, Jesus, command me to walk to you on the water. Command me to have victory over that, whatever that may be, whatever that storm may be because I know that in your command is the power to fulfill it. Help me to focus on you and your infinite supply rather than my own lack. It turns the Christian life around. I've seen this so much in my own life as I struggle with my own sin or my lack of faith. And when you and I begin to focus on the faithful one, we lose sight of our lack of faith and our fa- own faith begins to grow because he becomes the object. And I want to encourage you with those things this morning and you can continue to look at those chapters because the sad thing for the nation of Israel as we're challenged in Hebrews is don't be like them who missed out on rest because of their lack of faith, who missed out on the rest of God. When God promised them absolute victory over every all the enemy, and that every place they would set their foot would be theirs. And Joshua died with that promise, and he warned them again, don't intermarry, don't settle with the people of the land. And they're enduring this, the promises of God, and no sooner did they go into the, the book of Judges, you see they did not drive them out, and they did not drive them out, and they did not drive them out. And there may be things in our own lives today that we become content with. We've settled for our own defeat when God desires absolute victory for his children, we settle for our own defeat because of our lack of faith. Let's pray. Loving and gracious Father, I thank you so much for the victory that we have in Jesus. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It was never about us. It was about you. And I pray, Lord, that you'd cause us to grow in our faith as we focus on the faithful one. Lord, as Hebrews says, without faith it's impossible to please you because he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Thank you, Lord, that's when we trust you that we please you the most. When trust becomes our focus, we find that we please you because you're glorified. You're glorified in our trust because you're the source of all that we need. Lord, speak to our hearts today to help us to understand these truths. Thank you so much for this church and the partnership that we have in the gospel. Um, Lord, thank you for those, like these two testimonies we heard earlier from the Moi tribe. Thank you for the faith being expressed from these primitive tribal people on the other side of the world because of the power of your word. Lord, whatever the water may be, whatever the storms may be in our life today, command us to walk to you on the water because in your command is the power to fulfill it. Help us to receive all of your promises in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Just before we finish here, I want to show you a quick video because I do...